Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B coming to you from a sunny Kinsale in Cork in Ireland. It is that time of year again for the Kinsale Shark Awards, one of the big advertising festivals of Europe in its 57th year. As ever, they have a range of great speakers, and I'm very, very lucky and privileged to be able to talk to one of them who I've just witnessed his presentation about what he does, which was extremely inspiring. I'm welcoming James Burke. How are you? Very well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Did you enjoy your talk? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It was was always a bit of nerves before doing any kind of public speaking, but then once you're up there, it's great. Yeah, I was actually researching James's work last night, and I was going to try and impress him with how diligently I researched my guests, and of course, he basically uh, covered most of what I'd researched (laughs) in his speech. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I want to start with, um, it's it's hard to know where to start with you. Let's start with what you do as a job. You're a founder of a company called Acrylicize, which is all about disrupting the art world and branding. Tell me about it. We sit somewhere between fine art and branding. Uh, It's an extension of my university final art school project. And we're interested in exploring what art can be, because it's just, it's this this space in which you can make up the rules um, and trying to connect people to it. So it's kind of, I suppose, motivated by the fact that this art thing is happening, it's incredibly exciting, invigorating, but not that many people have exposure to it or feel a part of it, so I'm trying to bridge that gap. I feel that, you know, I, you know, I've, I told you my background is 27 years in advertising, it, 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 it was, it, the whole industry has been so resistant to actually rethinking how it does things for brands. You have some lovely stuff like the Wimbledon uh, work you did this, this year, I think, for yes. Court One, which... Yeah. It's just beautiful and it just, you know, and, and that's real and it goes out and people see it and it kind of, I mean, it just captures Wimbledon in a way that I can't imagine a poster done by an ad agency ever could. Yeah, I, well, I think like the two things that we're really interested in doing and someone like Wimbledon has this in droves is like, what's the story we're telling? Like, what is the narrative? Mm. And Wimbledon has this incredible history and just the devotion and the passion to what they do. It's infectious. So, yeah. it's, you know, once you start talking to them and dealing with them and going to the site, you really get a sense of that. It's like finding that narrative and then how do you put that together? How do you craft that in the best way? How do you tell that story? And those two, when those two things come together for us, that's where we do our work, you know, finding the story to tell and telling it in the most engaging way. I went to see Fleetwood Mac in Wembley, which is my first visit to the new Wembley. I, my line about Fleetwood Mac was that I was an old person watching old people, watching old people playing rumours. <laughs> but, but I actually did. So, so one, of the, one of the jobs um, James did was he, he kind of decked out the behind the pitch, the inside of Wembley Stadium with this amazing collection of famous moments that happened in old Wembley. And actually, while I was there, I really noticed it, like just as a punter. I was just walking down, we were in a box and we were all that row with just all these amazing. How does someone, A, get to do that? And B, how does a client go, oh, that's a great idea. You know, we should do that. Because it means like, when you see it, it's it, you, like it's something almost the architect should have built in. Yeah, well, it was it was surprising really because they built that stadium, and you know it was all about the arch and the scale and ninety thousand people, and you know you see this the, the old stadium superimposed over the new one, you see the scale difference, but they kind of left out the bit about the soul almost, and you know it's such hallowed turf that I was just really surprised that no one had thought about you know 
what do we do with this? And in terms of how we got to be involved with it, well, it was just a bit of serendipity, a bit of luck. But So did you just go to them with the idea or did they ask you? Or did no, they... so the story is that my mum, right. who is one of my biggest fans, hi mum, um, Hello. had pictures of <laughs> had pictures of my work had examples of the work in her house and um, people were over at her house her cousin was there and her cousin uh, had just gone into business with Dave Watson who was an ex-England footballer yeah and oh, Dave big Dave yeah yeah played for City S- and Southampton and, and he um, knew Michael Cunner and Michael Cunner was the then CEO of Wembley Stadium so basically he walked into my mum's house saw these pictures on the wall and thought this is interesting. Um, they're going to need to do something in the stadium. Would you like me to make an introduction? I know someone who knows someone. And from there, we saw that this was an opportunity. This was like, wow, this is our national stadium. And we just threw absolutely everything we had at it, you know. And, and I think that the hunger and the passion obviously came through because we didn't have experience and we didn't really have a portfolio per se. When we found out that we were doing it, which was in a meeting at Wembley Stadium, we were we just couldn't believe it. Honestly. So where did you get the pictures? So the pictures all came from image libraries, and this right. was kind of this was in two thousand and six, and it was before people were really controlling their own imagery. So amazingly, Wembley didn't really have their own imagery. It yeah. was all different picture agencies, um, you know, your sort of your Reuters yeah, yeah. and that type of thing. And the story was was that we went to all these agencies and said, look, we want to get all this imagery, and we're doing this project, and we're going to curate it throughout the building but we forgot to charge Wembley for the image rights. So when we gave us when we gave them our bill, it was like 30 grand short of image rights. And we were like, oh no, like, we're fucked. Sorry, can I swear on this? Yeah, of course, it's a um, podcast. And that's, a tag, that's, a, that's a catchphrase of mine now. It's a podcast. <laughs> it's a podcast, yeah. So we were like, shit, we, we've, we fucked it. Like, yeah. what are we going to do? I mean, just to, show, to give uh, people who haven't seen there, the whole of the inside of Wembley, when you walk in the corridors, the places where you buy beer and, you know, before you get up to the pitch, is just now covered in these amazing sort of six or 10 foot or 12 foot photographs, epic photographs, Freddie Mercury bent backwards at Live Aid, you know, Jeff Hurst getting the World Cup from the Queen, Gaza's goal against Scotland, you know, all of these amazing yeah. things that happened on the old Wembley. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, I would have thought that would be the first place. How much is it going to cost for rights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway, so we ended up going back to them and saying, look, we totally forgot to put that on, yeah. the, on the invoice. And we thought honesty would be the best policy, and it was. And they said, that's fine, you know, just send us the invoice. And, that was and they that. paid it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah amazing. Yeah. Um, so one of, the th- one of the things about this is that you have this thing about transforming workplaces. Mm. You said in your speech you, be- you believe in building moments, not monuments. Mm. Explain that. Well, I think certainly uh, in the public realm, I, I think success of good art in the public space is to get people interacting with it and mm. to make it make it have value in other people's lives more so than just plonking something in the middle of a space and saying there you go yeah so you know we're interested in mixing form and function and how do you engage and how do you interact and how do you give people something of real use and value and that's kind of what i mean by that and so whenever we're doing any type of work that's certainly in the public realm i don't want to just parachute in and drop something in there i want to give something to people they can actually use and connect people with art who maybe you know don't go into the gallery space or into the institutions. Like how do you how do you bridge that gap? So the one in Manchester for the lamps that was beautiful that you showed today. Yeah. So it's, it basically um, it was that a criticize or you? That was a criticize. Okay, so there's a, there's a blurred line between 
James Burke, the artist, uh, who does. I mean, by the way, you should go to jamesburkeartist.com if you're listening to this because there's an amazing array of his work there that you'll see. And it's it's all. I mean, I was looking at it last night, and I was going. It's kind of playful. It's challenging. You know, you you have a profundity or something that you try and build in that's not wanky. Mm. It's very other people. I mean, one of one of James's great pieces is five stars on a wall like the five star ratings that you give your uber taxi driver or your restaurant or your trip advisor and people who come up to the wall are then asked to press one of the five stars to give the piece of art a rating out of five which is very meta and then there's a thing in the wall to show how that's you know how many people have given a five and how many people have given a four i mean that to me is it captures a lot of what you're about because there is this cheekiness built into it yeah you talked about uh, Marcel Duchamp as being a, a hero of yours and you know what he did was was even though it changed the artwork he was just having a laugh yeah, yeah you know and it got yeah. thrown out apparently the first one well for sure I think the, the art world takes itself way too seriously mm. so you know you, you can have a bit of fun and I think humour and a playful kind of approach allows people in you mm. know so like that's why I'm doing it and to your point about the blurred lines between a criticise and, and me, the best analogy I can give is criticises my band and my yeah, you're uh, Jack White, and, and and I have a solo album, you know, <laughs> yeah. like that's my solo project basically. So that's kind of a way to rationalise it. But those five stars, I mean, Nosedive, you've probably seen Charlie Brooker's, you know, you're probably a big fan of Black Mirror, right? Well, because ironically, everybody says this to me. I've never seen an episode. You've never seen I, Nosedive. I'm aware of it, okay. and I know that the, the the conversation is very similar to the one I'm having. Yes. But are you fearful of watching stuff like that for fear that you might subconsciously stray into an idea that someone else had, or how do you? Um, yeah, possibly. I mean, I, the whole thing I find a little bit scary anyway, and I think that's why I kind of channel my art to kind of address that. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, whilst you know, you can argue that the, the whole thing being where the world's going. Yeah, I think I think certainly with social media yeah. and you know people's reliance on it and. You know, I've got young children, so it's, I suppose it's become a bit more relevant to me now when I think about... I'm, I'm free of that because I grew up without it and then I had it and now I can take it or leave it. It doesn't make any difference to me. Uh, but for my children, I'm aware that this is now a big part of the social fabric. So there's a, there's a conversation and discussion to have and I think making these types of works and the bloom one as well, everything and nothing... If I can make you conscious of that conversation, then I'm, I'm doing my role as an artist. You know? So the balloon, when he talks to everything and nothing, is also amazing. It's a it's a plinth with a glass box on top, and inside the black the box is a helium balloon, for want of a better word. That uh, every time someone tweets about it, everyone uh, every time it gets a like, on every Instagram. time it gets a like on Instagram, a shot of air gets pumped into this balloon. So while you're watching this balloon is starting to inflate and inflate and inflate until? Uh, until it can't take any more air and it bursts. And then it's kind of the installation then becomes the And it's a heart-shaped balloon as well, by the yeah. way. So it's, like it's kind of the disruption left behind. And then do you go, does someone go in an hour later and reattach it? Is that how it works? Or? So I kind of like to um, leave it for the rest of the day. Okay. And then the next day. So it's presumably done by 10 a.m. or something. So, yeah, and it's a cycle that goes on and on. Um, but it's just as important to see the aftermath as it is to see the performative part mm, mm. Uh, ex- expanding. So the, you have the, you have these, um, you know, when I was talking about about Booker there, you know, that there's this, you know, you, you talk about your young kids. Do you have 
are you going to put limitations on them on, on, on what they can see or do, yeah. do they have a phone or a laptop or they don't iPad? at the moment yeah and we're super conscious me and my wife to not constantly be on our phones so we have a rule that there's no phones at the table right. absolute zero tolerance and it's only really me and her because they're yeah. too young to have phones but it just ensures that that time we sit around the table with family time and it's really sacred and it's really important to yeah. protect that when I come home from the studio I put my phone instantly in the key dish by the door and then I leave it there until the kids are well and truly in bed so right. it's another I, I could just see that if I didn't do that you know I go upstairs and maybe having a bath yeah. or you know reading or putting their pyjamas on and I'm kind of like you know facing the phone it just sets an example which means that when they grow up that's what they'll think is the norm because yeah. you know we did it and I just think it's sad that parent uh, the kids look at their parents and they're not really there no I, just, I think that's really sad there's that great photographer who's done that lovely work where he's just photographed people without the phones in their hands just looking at their hands yeah that's have you cool. seen that it's that's absolutely amazing idea, yeah. I saw it there recently but I mean myself and my girlfriend are the same we're just and she's all over it she just says oh it saves her life she's got depression and she said like there's there's a, there's the sort of the, the good side of phones where people can stay connected yes um, but you know we're, we're we're getting mental health issues at a rate that I haven't seen since in, in, at any stage in my yeah. life I'm 50 and I'm like going it was either like that and people were really good at disguising it yeah. because it was probably stigmatised yeah. or else something's happening and we're, we're, we're doing this experiment with phones where no one's really tracking you know it's yeah. probably going to happen with AI as well that we're just yeah, going to yeah, yeah. end up suddenly being run by overlords uh, <laughs> you know what it's, it's not so much the technology that is the issue it's the use of the technology like you know they've implemented all the addictive triggers uh, and the game theory to keep you hooked yeah. now, they knew what they were doing and they still did it yeah. uh, and they'd be the first to admit that but it didn't have to be that way and it doesn't have to be that way and things like you know why do you need to have likes on Instagram for example so yeah. wouldn't it be better if you could just post a picture and not worry about the response just show someone a picture because yeah. you're just showing a picture all of a sudden a bit like all... my podcast <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully there's one person yeah. right now. All of a sudden, there's no pressure on that. You yeah. know? So it's, it's not necessarily the technology, it's just the mm. way it's been used. And it's the it's the kind of manipulation and the manipulative, addictive techniques which are keeping people, it's an attention economy and keeping people engaged. That's the issue. You had, you know, you had Google when they launched, I remember when they launched, their their mission or whatever purpose was don't not to do evil, don't yeah, do evil. evil. I'm used yeah. to laughing about you're only a search engine. So like your point about them knowing the yeah. power they're about to unleash. Yeah. I'm not sure they actually kept to that. No, no. And I think Facebook is another. I mean, I, I'm not on Facebook anymore. Like, I, I just, I don't need it. I just don't need it in my life. And I'm so happy, so much happier for not being on yeah. it. And I just don't care about what other people are yeah. doing. You know, like, when people come home from their holidays and they start showing you their holiday photos, like, you don't give a shit. Right? So was, why now do we live our lives just watching other people? We were at a, we went to Iceland for our summer holiday and we went to this geyser, geyser, you know, and so it's a bubbling, you know, it doesn't have a time schedule and when it goes up and it shoots water yeah. 200 meters into the air, 100 meters in the air. Yeah. And I remember we walked, we arrived at this thing and there was like 400 people around it with their phones ready, yeah, wait, yeah. looking at a hole in the Poised ground the in the middle of Iceland. Yeah. And I thought it was really poignant. I was going and like I took my phone out and I was talking to my girlfriend going, this is fucking stupid. I don't know why this is stupid, but this is really stupid. Yeah, this yeah. is a, a natural phenomenon. Like I said, if the world was sentient. Yeah. If the if the if the planet was ever going, look at these fucking idiots here, and yeah, they, you yeah, know, of course. and I, I actually turned my camera on, I held my phone to it, 
And just as I did, so these people waited for half an hour, yeah. and it went off, and I hid it, and I got like tourist quality picture yeah, of it. Yeah. And I said, "Right, well, might as well go get something to eat." Yeah, yeah. But there was just this thing of thirty years ago, you go to that gay store, you'd have maybe an instamatic camera, and you yeah. hope to get it, but you wouldn't be all besotted about getting it, and you'd yeah. see it in real life, and it would be an experience. Which a lot of your work is sort of playing in that area. It's about like touch the art, sit on the art, poke yes. the art, hold the art. You know. Yeah. Um, and that's starting to there's just something I can't actually put my finger on but there's something on the nose here that's just not really right yeah no agreed agreed I think everybody feels it everybody's aware that something's not quite we're headed in a direction which doesn't feel wholesome yeah doesn't feel like morally right so that's why I'm making this work because I'm just you know I just feel like I've got to say it like I feel like you can't look back at these moments and think I didn't do anything you know I just watched it all happen so anything that I can do that, like I said, even if it just wakes someone up for a second because yeah. they go and they see this work and they think, you know what, it is a bit ridiculous, then my job is done and I'm happy. One of your quotes is that, you know, the middle class is stuck between aspiration and authenticity, mm. which is kind of sums that up a bit, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, you're, we're not really authentic on Facebook. We don't cry on Facebook. We don't. We, we and, and anyone who does the response is not healthy either it's like you know Sinead O'Connor or whatever has a meltdown publicly and the world goes laughs at her rather yeah. than puts an arm around her you know what yeah, I mean yeah, yeah. Yeah. technology though when I was looking at all of your work today I was going so much of your stuff is has got to be made easier by the fact that 3D printing is a thing and you can get things made and they can look elegant and they can look really polished you know, like 30, 40 years ago, you know, trying to get some of the installations done and all like, yeah, one of the ones that, another one I wanted to talk about, by the way, we left football, but you, you did uh, Middleton Lodge. Is yes. it called Middleton Lodge? Yes. Spurs. Uh, I had a joke about that because Middleton Lodge is the Spurs training ground and uh, James and his team were asked to come up with a internal uh, visual display that wasn't too Spursy. Yes. So, because other foreign teams sometimes come and stay there. So even though it's on Spurs training ground, they rented out to visiting teams. And I was, I was thinking maybe the, maybe if it was too Spursy, the building would collapse just as you're about to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Spurs fan, so I'm not laughing at that joke. <laughs> I knew you were because he used the word Spursy. But uh, he made this beautiful thing where he got Pochettino, who's a Spurs manager, to uh, give them his top 30 goals. And they actually then made a constellation like the way constellations are drawn in astronomy of the passing moves and each each player was a star in the sky yeah. and then they put that along a 200 meter thing which is absolutely fantastic um and, and at the end of it is the goal and who scored it and where and you know i presume they weren't all spurs goals were they no no no, no. and a lot of south american goals a lot of south american goals yeah. and and you know that's another example so the you know of, of how to you know, again, I can't see an ad agency ever coming up with that. And even if they did, I can't see a suit going, what are you doing? What's, what, what are you making stars on? What? what? Yeah. Well, you know what? It's, it's interesting because the work we do has no metrics for success. So mm. in an ad agency or mm. in marketing, in the marketing world, it's about, I don't know, click throughs or how many products were sold. Well, your five or, stars has a metric for success. Yeah, that one does. <laughs> yes. In that instance. Yeah, absolutely. But on the most part, it's kind of, you know, like your storytelling. And yeah. it's like you're sitting around a campfire and you're telling that story and it doesn't go any further than that. And it's kind of nice to be in that realm where it's more just about the quality of the craft and the way that it's created. And then, you know, there's no way to that know, point. Is, is there any that you have fucked up? Is there any that you've gone, oh, uh, that didn't work? 
yeah. I mean, yeah. any good stories or you know? Well, there was there was one we did. Um, we had a huge uh, entrance to a shopping centre. Right. I mean, this incredible opportunity to create a hanging installation over about thirty meters, and it was about four or five meters high. And we wanted to create this uh, canopy of leaves, and we wanted to create it out of aluminium, and it was going to be this beautiful, shimmering, kind of swaying, organic form. And what we realised, and we were quite, we hadn't worked at that scale before, is that you need a lot of structural integrity to have that thing support itself and for it to exist in the real world, not just on an image on a page. And basically, we're guided by this engineer to create this this, this branch system, network of branches to hold the leaves. And by the end of it, it was just a bunch of twisted metal and it just it lost its essence but you know we're, we're constantly looking to push boundaries and to yeah. do things we've never done before and the very nature of doing that type of thing is that sometimes it's not going to work and you know it's difficult because it's on other people's time. time and their money and their budget but I mean one of the things about you is and I'm a big f- I mean I've studied a bit about Frank Lloyd Wright who you know, he did water lilies buildings, which fucking leaked, and which is ironic because it's meant to be sort of, yeah. it me- it meant to be kind of yeah. get that under the pond feel. Yeah. And a lot of his stuff was form over fun- uh, over function, you know. And architecture also, if advertising has missed this boat, architecture seems to have missed this boat too. Is that fair? Uh, which boat? Is it? Well, yeah, the boat of of what you were doing is like is 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 you know taking a building or a workplace mm. and saying we can make this much more inspiring mm. than just the bricks and mortar and the steps and the uh, and the windows, right? Yeah, well, no, I think I think in any any industry, any profession, any sector, there's good work and there's not so good work. And and I think, you know, even for us, we're, we're constantly trying new things and we're quite prolific as a show. We do a lot of yeah. work. Uh, and it doesn't always work. So we're by no means perfect, but we are trying to marry form and function and we are and we are trying to inject real storytelling into the work that we do mm. and I don't think that's anything new because we're storytellers as yeah. a species you know that's how we've evolved through life and yeah I think there's just there's just interesting stuff going on and some of it works and some of it doesn't but I think if you're really pushing the boundaries you're going to have stuff that doesn't work and yeah of course everything works for you and everything's so and great. allow failure yeah. yeah what are your metrics you know so, the, so the, I mentioned we were we've gone off off topic a bit, the, the lamps in Manchester I was mm. going to talk about. Mm-hmm. So, in uh, Square in Manchester, um, James's team had this really f- outrageous idea, and it basically couldn't happen, didn't happen, money, whatever. Mm. Tell the story about what happened after your what, what was it? It was a tram that was supposed to go upside down or something. Yes, it was, it was a big sculptural tram that essentially did a loop right over your head. What um, part of Manchester are we talking again? This is um, Piccadilly, right by the station. And it was an idea that would have been great and it looked fantastic on the page and we were all really excited to do it but deep down I think we knew that it was never going to happen and it didn't really answer the brief which was kind of what I was talking about in the talk there about just knowing when your idea is right and when to move on and that particular idea we had to leave and that would have been a monument more more than a moment I think Um, and then you know, I went and I, I kind of walked into an antique store, saw a lamp with a little figurine next to it, and that was kind of a moment. Where I was like, "That's the idea." Um, so, what was the idea? You ended up building four lamps. So, yes, yeah, we created these giant, oversized lamps. Tallest ones about five meters, six meters. Um, Beautifully done. And each of them tell a different story about a time period in Manchester's history where there was a moment of great innovation, and so yeah. the, the style of the lamp marks that moment in time so you know something happened in the 1930s and it's rutherford 
did pioneering work in uh, atomic physics. So that was represented by a deco lamp because obviously that's the time yeah. of deco. And then the the pattern work in the um, shade of the lamp was in a, was a kind of a, book. a, a the, the whole physical uh, atomic symbol. Oh, the atomic symbol, sorry, yeah, it was a book one as well. Yeah. And then yeah, the Art Nouveau uh, lamp, which was about Manchester's old, oldest free public library, was, yeah. was this kind of open book motif with pen nibs around the outside. So. Yeah, it was. Um, it was so they're all built, they're built, and you can sit under them, and they're you know you, there'll be links to the podcast on the blurb of the podcast if you want to see any of this stuff. But there is this thing with public uh, works. I had a, a guest called Carrie Reichart on the show who actually she's a ceramicist and she did her whole house in Chiswick. She ceramicized. That's the word. Her whole house. Yeah without going to the council or whatever. But of course, people are going, what the, f-? you know, crazy house at the end of yeah, this yeah, terrorist, yeah. right? Yeah. And she did a great job, it's beautiful, and she's yeah. she's an activist. How worried do you get about, do you, do you like when your work has a lot of people who hate it? Um, this polarization of creativity where, it, you know, or instead of saying, oh, that's nice. Yeah, I think it's health. I think it's healthy. Do I love it when people hate my work? No, of course. But but the the, 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 the fact that it's create stimulating debate is definitely a positive thing. Yeah. And if everything's so vanilla that you're just like, oh, that's very nice. Mm-hmm. That's good. And we do, you know, so you, you open yourself up and you expose yourself when you do public work to people commenting on it because it's, you know, part of their physical landscape. And all of a sudden, you know, like they've got something to say about it. And I think good art should divide opinion. You know, mm. like, you know, I was talking to someone last night over a few beers about Duchamp and the yeah. Fountain and conceptual art, and he couldn't get it, couldn't see why it was art and thought it was just a bunch of bullshit. And I said, yeah, but the conversation probably is what's important here. And, mm. you know, that's that stimulates debate and thoughts. And all of a sudden, these ideas kind of orbit around that and it keeps things moving. So it's really important. A former guest on the show, Craig Damrauer, who who's, has this great book called New Math, where he does uh, aphorisms like uh, dog equals cat minus loyalty. You know, so he, he <laughs> nice. kind of, but he, he had one nice. which was modern art equals I could do that minus, uh, uh, minus yeah, but you didn't. But you didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's obviously the rebuttal. That's like, <laughs> yeah. You know, if you, wanted, if yeah. you could have done that, go and do it. I, I often, often talk to people about uh, how they got to this point in their life. You had a lovely sort of very quick, you know, music was important to you. You're a drummer. You got into pop art, Duchamp, graffiti. You were a big graffiti artist. What does uh, Shesh mean, by the way? What's, that's His graffiti handle is Shesh. Yes, yeah. So that comes from um, Shesh Besh. Right. Which is 5-6. Okay. Uh, and in Middle Eastern circles, that's, um, that's backgammon. So we were playing ah, a lot of backgammon. Okay. And that's where the name comes from. Okay. And so, and, and so we would refer to it as Shesh. Like, do you want to go with Shesh? And so... I like the word because it kind of sounds a bit like fresh. Yeah. It's the, I like the idea. That I thought about it. drinking because I'm Irish. Sesh. Yeah. We have yeah, a yeah, sesh. Sesh, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and and the, word, the letters are cool as well because you've got an SH and you've got an SH at the end. So you, mm. kind of, can, you can always mirror those forms and with the E in the middle. What were you like as a kid? What would your mum say to me? You mentioned her earlier. He was terrible. Were you, were you, were you always intriguing? Were you int- curious? No, I was, I, was, artistic? I was quiet. Definitely right. quiet child. Middle child as well. Okay. Um, and... I I don't know I, I I think I was quite introspective and I was never part of the popular scenes or right. anything and I was just trying to figure it all out really you know and I think art gave me a tool to be able to make sense of the world you know genuinely yeah. um, but I didn't really know who I was until I got to university until I saw that Marcel Duchamp yeah and and also I remember seeing um, 
the Sgt. Pepper album cover by Peter Blake in a textbook. Mm. And I'd always thought of it as an album cover and nothing else. And then I saw it in an art textbook labelled underneath Peter Blake and the year that it was made. And, 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 and all of a sudden I was like, now I'm seeing this in the context of an art textbook. This is art and something different to what I thought it was, which was just an album cover, which was just practically to, you know, package a, a record. Yeah. And it just made me think, it really like made me think about the context of things and, you know, like when is art, not what is art, you know? And, and that That's really, great, yeah. really opened up my mind to being, having thoughts and ideas and those being the artworks themselves. So you mentioned about my work being quite meta. It all comes from that idea that yeah. the idea is the work. And Sergeant Pepper has played a big role in your life because of your drumming. Yes, that's a good link. Nice segue. Yeah. yeah, lovely segue. <laughs> so yes, that's the first ever beat I learned. Ringo Starr, four four. Yeah, amazing. And and that was it. And and now um, I've got young. But you said boys. in your speech that there was this amalgamation of hands and feet and yes. rhythm yeah, that yeah. you said you've been trying to recapture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's kind of like I think I, I, if I look back now. Um, and I think about when you're a creative person, when you do creative things, what you're working for is that intoxicating feeling. It's almost like, you know, euphoric. You just, you feel it in your yeah. heart. You feel it in every fibre of your being like, oh my God, this is it. I'm I've doing got something. It. I've got it's it. It's a eureka moment. Right, that. And I, and I believe that I first experienced that when, I, when everything clicked into place. And with drumming, like I said, it's like, it's two hands, two feet. They've all got to work simultaneously to make this thing happen. Yeah. And I just remember very vividly, once I got that, I was like, this feels absolutely amazing. Yeah. I've never felt anything like this before, but this is creative expressions. My yeah. first ever real sense of achievement in the creative realm. And I think that, you know, when, when I have ideas or when I'm sitting and I'm thinking about stuff, when I get that feeling, I know that I'm there. Yeah. You know, and if you don't have that feeling, you've got to keep going. I, I have had it a few times in the ab business where I know it. I've got it. Yeah. yeah, yeah I call yeah. it a you line, know, a line from God. Know. But I've, I've then gone in and tried to sell it and they've rejected it. And I'm like, you fucking idiots. You, yeah. This is it. This is the answer. How can you not see that? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's I like your shame. take responsibility. It's all your fault. We're going to just we'll close on those. But your parents were obviously very important because I can feel this freedom to yes. explore that you have about you. Yeah. Did that come from them? Well, definitely. I think I was encouraged from an early age to express myself creatively. I think yeah. they realised that academically I wasn't up to much, so they bought me a drum kit. There was always music playing in my house, always, um, and good music as well. So I had incredible music education from Pink Floyd to The Doors to The Beatles. Uh, blues, jazz, and everything in between. So, yeah, like I think they were very much like, do your thing, you know, follow your own path, and that's everything really because that's what I've done. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it's it is kind of a new thing because society has corralled people historically. You know, be this, be that, go this way, don't be stupid. You know, Eddie Izzard's great bit about um, you know I want to be an astronaut. You're from. London, you can't be an astronaut. Okay, I want to work in a sous shop. Don't be so stupid. You can't work in a sous shop. Okay, I want to work in a sewer. You know, we have this kind of track that we're kind of, we're discouraged. Mm. You know, you said I was encouraged and you said you bought your young kid a drum kit like your folks got you. Yes. That's encouraging. Yeah. Even the idea of a drum kit in a home. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you've got to be yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and it's yeah. probably the most expressive instrument that a kid can 
because yeah. you know you, yeah, you don't yeah. have to learn anything you just hit the yeah. hit the your heartbeat is you know is the first beat um let's just finish with your with your three it was a lovely ending to your speech and I might as well capture it here for mm. posterity which was the three things that you learned and like I just let you go with those because I think they're great yeah um, the first one is about getting lost putting yourself in a position where you expose yourself to new new things essentially so I think if we do the same things over and over again we're only going to produce the same work over and over again and so it's about having the confidence and trusting in the process to go on a journey where you don't know where you're going to end up and expose yourself and shift your perspective and it's, it's simple things like get up from your desk and go out or take a different route to work don't do the same thing over and over again i think it's really important i think by doing that you expose yourself to new experiences and from that you get ideas you know and, and I'm a big believer that all the ideas we need are right in front of us. We've just got to see them. And so by putting yourself in a perspective, in a, in a situation where you're exposing yourself to that, you're allowing that to come to you as opposed to, you know, you've got to search for it. Mm. It's all there. It's all there. So that was the first one. Second one is... Winners are quitters. Winners are quitters, yes. So knowing when to... I like that one. <laughs> yeah, knowing, knowing when to leave an idea, basically. Yeah. Like, like you could be flogging a dead horse and you're wasting time and you're wasting money or you're wasting energy, whatever it is. And like, it's not binary and it's not easy to kind of gain that perspective and that experience. But, you know, like it's about having the nous and having, I suppose, the perspective to see when you know, this is worth pursuing yeah. or I need to move on. And sometimes you need to make that decision and move on. And I gave a couple of examples in there, but yeah. you do actually can take you into much more appropriate places. Uh, and, the, and the last one was it's all your fault. Um, and obviously three very provocative <laughs> uh, three very provocative titles but take responsibility stop blaming everybody else like no one gives a shit about the excuses at the end of your life you're going to look back on the things you did not the things you didn't do and I think a lot of that is about reframing the way life comes at you so if there's constraints if there's no time if there's no budget if the client whatever figure out a way to turn those negatives into positives, turn those um, barricades or those boundaries or obstacles into your biggest opportunities. And the minute you start to reframe things like that, you feel you find you have so much more control over life. Forget even creativity. Yeah. So I don't know, you're sitting in traffic. Maybe that gives you an opportunity to check out the architecture of the buildings that you've driven past a million times and never looked up at. Yeah. You know, like maybe it's a time for you to like tune into the tune that's on your radio, whatever it may be, like just turn things around and you realize that so much more uh, is, is um, there's so much more to take out of the world if you do it that way. And I think it's about taking responsibility, it's about being vulnerable, it's about allowing yourself to not know all the answers and just watch what happens if you do that. I think you, know, you expose yourself to a lot more opportunity. Number one, get lost. Number two, winners are quitters. Number three, it's all your fault. Anyone listening from the brand side of things, I would encourage to get in touch with James Burke through uh, Acrylicize, his company. I'm very jaundiced, I have to say, about all these kinds of speeches, one of the most inspiring ones I've seen in quite some time. Keep disrupting things, um, keep making great art, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. Ah!